December 1982. This is the Player Missile Podcast, and I'm Rob, your host. This episode, I'm going to finish up the magazines for the month, including two new ones. Well, one and a half new ones, I guess. We have Page Six, which is an independent magazine from the UK, and we have Atari Input Output, which is a sort of magazine. It's kind of an Atari in-house thing, much like the Atari Connection, but it's from Atari UK. This month, the Input Output is only like four pages, which is why I kind of say it's like a half The next time we get to an Atari input output, which is quarterly, it will be a little more substantial. Let's start off here with the Atari magazine from this side of the pond, the Atari Connection. It's the winter 82-83 issue. It's volume 2, number 4. It says Atari Connection, the home computer magazine. $3 on the cover price, 58 pages in the issue. On the cover is another culturally white Santa Claus in front of a fireplace with some stockings hanging. There's a Christmas tree on the left, and Santa is leaning down, nicely distributing a whole bunch of Atari stuff, including an 800 that's wrapped in a ribbon, a bunch of APX stuff, several boxes of official Atari software like My First Alphabet, Pac-Man, and Galaxian. Looks like there's a 410 tape recorder in a box, and there's a couple, like, kits. It looks like maybe the Entertainer kit. Oh, no, it's the Bookkeeper kit. Ah, just what you want under your Christmas tree is the Bookkeeper kit. Perhaps that's for the parents and not for the kids peeking around the corner of the fireplace. Above the magazine title, it says, How to Introduce Your Child to a Home Computer. And other text on the page says, Perfect Software Gifts for Everyone on Your Atari List. And then the hottest new game says Defender, Kicks, and Galaxian. Plus an interview with the creator of Galahad. Easy to enter programs. Heating fuel costs. Computer carols. And word processing is mightier than the typewriter. An entire family discovers why. The inside front cover is an ad for APX. It says, For Users by Users. And there's a stack of APX software that's probably 10 feet tall and shows this like foreshortened picture looking from below of a guy like marveling looking up at the height of the stack of APX software. The table of contents is quite detailed, calling out every single program they review. But again, you know, this is an Atari publication. And so they're, they're only talking about stuff that either Atari or APX puts out. So I guess they're kind of like highlighting their own stuff. The home word processing article by Jim Inscore is really talking to people who still use typewriters and they're saying typewriters aren't ready to be tossed on the industrial junk heap just yet, but saying word processors can be, they allow you to be more creative because you can like type out your thoughts, but if you're not sure about what order, you can change them around. Another advantage is you can just type, type, type as fast as you can, not worry about spelling, and then go back and fix it all later. You know, saying that getting your thoughts out as fast as you possibly can gets around the idea that you might forget things if you're having to worry about spelling and editing as you type, rather than worry about all that stuff afterward. Next, we come to a seven-page article, Gifts for Everyone on Your Atari List, by Paula Polly, saying you can find something for everyone on your list. From conversational Italian for Aunt Jean, who's going to go to Europe next year, to the bookkeeper for Dad, to keep up with his baseball card collection, music composer for Mom, to give her some fresh ideas for teaching her junior high class, Atari Basic for Billy, because a bunch of his friends are getting into computer games so he could write his own, and for Janet, with all her college applications coming up, the Atari word processor would be a great idea. So it lists a whole bunch of Atari software in different categories, like for the educational stuff. It talks about My First Alphabet, touch typing, and all the conversational languages available. For the home, it talks about family vehicle expense from APX, home filing manager, personal fitness program from APX, and then also, because we know this is what you want to use your computer for in the home, recipe search and save by APX. The background on all the pages of this article is filled with just APX software and Atari software, and the text kind of like runs this meandering path through it. You know, it shows boxes for computer chess, for Telelink 1 cartridge, the home filing manager, my first alphabet, you know, all the pictures of APX and Atari boxes in the background. 
And surprisingly, the biggest section is not games. The game section is no bigger than any other section. And in fact, it's not even called games. It says gifts that are shared by all. And it starts off with a questionable one, astrology, but then talks music composer, then centipede, and computer chess, scram, blackjack casino, from APX, space invaders, Pac-Man, and star raiders. And the one game that I hadn't heard before is Blockbuster. And it has many contortions, goes way out of its way not to mention the actual word Rubik's, but it's about solving a Rubik's Cube. And I certainly remember Rubik's Cubes. Don't know that I've talked about it much on the podcast, but I found my old, like, original Rubik's Cube from 82 or 83 or whatever it was when I first got mine. And I even found the old book that I used to solve it. And at one point when I was a kid, I think I was about around a minute solving cubes. And I've gotten back into them recently. I got a bunch of cubes for my kids to see if they'd be interested. And then they were kind of like, eh, whatever. But then I got interested. So I'm trying to learn some speed cubing techniques. Not nearly as fast as I was back then, but I think eventually I'll be faster. It's just going to take a lot of practice. It's interesting all the speed cubing algorithms that are much different than what I learned initially in the book that I had, you know, in the 80s. And I'm looking at that book now. It's called Mastering Rubik's Cube, The Solution to 20th Century's Most Amazing Puzzle by Don Taylor. And kindly, there's an inscription on the cover. It says, To Rob from Mark 8481. So thanks again, Mark. I appreciate that. He ended up also getting an Atari, and he got into assembly language much earlier than I did and had the Mac 65 macro assembler that I ended up copying from him. Unfortunately, I moved. I did a lot of moving when I was a kid, not by choice. And so I didn't get to keep up with Mark and all his Atari stuff. Hope you're out there somewhere, Mark, with some good memories of the Atari like me. And thanks again for Mac 65 and the Rubik's Cube book. I really appreciate them both. It is interesting looking at this book and how it's kind of a basic solution. The notation is like slightly different from what is used now in the cubing community, but it's similar. And as I'm learning speed cubing now, I'm learning how to solve the first two layers simultaneously. Whereas in this book, it tells you how to solve it, you know, incrementally. And theoretically, I mean, all the fast cubers learn, you know, they solve the first two layers and then they do like permutation and orientation to the the final layer. And supposedly it'll be faster right now. It's slow. I'm just trying to figure out how to recognize all those cases you've got to understand. But this little reference to the Blockbuster software from APX, yeah, it goes into as many convoluted descriptions as they can possibly can. So they don't have to use a, you know, TM for the cube. It says, now you can master that frustrating colored cube puzzle. And it says the software can help you find a solution to the cube you have in hand. I may have to check out this software to see what it's like now that I know a little bit more about solving the cube, see what kind of efficient algorithm it uses. Uh, I'm guessing, you know, not terribly efficient because certainly a lot of speed cubing has, you know, improved algorithms in the last, you know, whatever it is, 40 years. And finally, in this article, they say the gifts that make more gifts, and they list languages, Atari Pilot, Atari Microsoft Basic, and the Atari Assembler Editor, of which they say, caution, this is a sophisticated programming tool, not for beginners. But as Chris Crawford noted in, in last episode's uh, talk of his Legionnaire article, the Atari Macro Assembler is a much more friendly system than the Assembler Editor. There's a special feature section listed as uh, Galahad and the Holy Grail by Kevin Rarden, who they note as the senior writer in the Atari Home Computer Division. It's a review of the game, saying that when Galahad was first submitted to APX by program author Douglas Crockford, some APX staff reviewers stay up until 4 o'clock in the morning, caught within the game's web of enchantment. The author said that he wanted to find out all the rooms, what each one looked like, and said for the first two weeks he had the game, spent nearly all of his off-work time, and some work hours, he says, and only managed to see about half the rooms. It goes over a basic summary how it's like a, you know, room-to-room game. You push off the edge and it pops into another thing, another room, saying you flip from room-to-room, saying as you travel on different surfaces, your speed is different. 
It says there's multiple adventures once you found the Holy Grail and return it to Camelot. A whole new adventure begins. It says a never-ending quest much like that of the gallant Sir Knight Galahad in these glorious days when honor and chivalry ruled. Kind of skipping over the glorious parts of the bubonic plague, relentless oppression, and general miserable living conditions for everyone who wasn't born into certain families. The manual is said to provide a complete guide for your quest in the Holy Grail, like tips and pointers, as well as some notes on the design, but that only the minimum necessary to play Galahad has actually been revealed. So apparently it's a game of discovery. It's $29.95, available from APX, requires a disc and a joystick controller. The next page is an interview with Doug Crockford, it says. And the intro material said it was submitted in the spring and won first prize in the summer quarter, making him eligible to compete in the annual $25,000 Atari Star Award. It says he now works under the guidance of celebrity game designer Chris Crawford here at Atari's Corporate Research and Development Lab. I first asked if Galhad was the first program he tried to create, and he says no. I tried some other things, was going to do a word processor, and wanted to create a music processor that would display music on the screen and edit it much the same as a word processor, but says that he attempted those before he really understood the capabilities of the machine. He said he was trying to do beyond what it was practical. It says, so with Galahad, I scaled down my expectations and found a very, very good fit with the machine. The Atari Connection asks what motivated you to create the game, and he says, Adventure. He said he bought it 800, hoping that Adventure would make the crossover from the video game machine to the computer, but never happened and he wanted to do it himself. He said in the process, he ended up with something that was quite different, but still keeping in the intent of Adventure. There's a couple of spoilery questions, which I don't know if I should spoil. I've spoiled other things before, but they just talk about some how some rooms aren't quite what they seem, and how he designed one even to be resemble kind of a Mobius strip. It says in your user's guide, you provide a lengthy reading list. Uh, do you consider yourself a scholar on the subject? And he said, I wish I were. I've done quite a lot of reading, but I couldn't classify myself as an expert. But then it says he, he has read all, all the books on the list. And they asked the obvious question of the recent movies, including Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And he says, obviously, he was influenced by Monty Python because there is a holy hand grenade and a killer rabbit in the game, apparently. It finishes up noting that he's working on a demo program currently. It's not a full game, but it says it simulates the sort of trench run on the final attack on the Death Star in Star Wars. The article author says, It's not yet part of any specific game. The simulation is as close to real-time animation as any I've seen. And we at Atari are excited that Doug Crockford has come to work for us and anxiously await the results of his next game design. Says his personal goal is to top Star Raiders, which is certainly ambitious. There's a couple reviews. It says APX Best is a review of Salmon Run and Eastern Front. And as you can imagine, being an Atari publication reviewing Atari things, they're quite positive. There's a news feature of APX First Place Winners, uh, Typo Attack by David Bueller, Real Estate Cash Flow Analysis by Richard Lindgren, and Basic XA by Thomas Newton, and Quarks On by Scott Ludwig. It's a nice little capsule summary saying, Once you see the lush tropical colors in Scott Ludwig's Quarks On, it's easy to guess where he lives. Scott programmed this exciting droid-against-droid fantasy at his home in Hawaii. And it gives a little bit of description of the gameplay that we covered in episode 23. And it notes that Quarkson will be the first published program for the 17-year-old. In the new products section, they talk about the new numerical keypad, the CX-85. And I'll include a link in the show notes to a mod that Josh Malone did that turned his CX-85 into a USB controller. For games in the new product section, they say not one, not two, but three hot new games from Atari, Galaxian Defender and Kicks. And this Kicks is the original 800 version, not the 5200 version that was eventually ported, because there was no really official release of that 5200 version. 
And again, I'll get to reviews of the Kixes, the comparison of the, I don't know, Kixi on the final, however many, not sure exactly the number of episodes I'm going to do on the 8-bit versus 5200 comparison. But wherever that final one is, I will do a comparison of the 8-bit and the 5200 Kicks. They also mentioned Juggles House and Juggles Rainbow, two new programs for kids. And there's this focus on the kids section that includes the Find the Bug Winner, where they have a little basic bug. And they have another one here for your next time. And there's a program puzzle by Tom Hudson. Not the analog Tom, Tom Hudson, but the Atari Tom Hudson. There's a coming attraction set section saying, Coming soon to your Atari home computer, E.T. Phone Home. Saying you've probably seen that ad for the Atari 2600 version. And probably asking yourself, When will the game be out for the Atari home computer? Says, well, the answer is simple, in the early spring. But there's more to it than that. We've started our version from scratch to take full advantage of the computer's advanced sound and graphics capabilities. And everybody's probably breathing a sigh of relief at that. We come to the article, How to Introduce Your Child to a Home Computer, that was mentioned on the cover. This is by Teddy Converse, saying, Actually, children usually don't need much of an introduction to anything new. Most often, they'll simply introduce themselves. And it looks like they're talking about very young children, because they say some things are like, you know, show your, pro- your child how to load a program, tell them they should have their hands clean and dry, and explain how to handle a diskette properly. And says, usually children only need one demonstration of how to open a disk drive door, and will be thrilled to be able to insert a diskette. They finish up saying, showing your child how to operate a computer is much like showing him or her how to operate a record player. And I think kids today would find a computer much easier to learn than operating a record player. So, sign of the times. There's an article, the new software center in the UK. It says, Software in the Queen's English, by Aubrey Wallace, who says, is a senior writer with the Atari International Division. Opening with a joke saying that Americans and Britons are one people divided by a common language, and then how they're opening this new center in London to do custom translation and production of software that is sensitive to a foreign country's people and their culture. And basically just saying that, you know, despite the languages being similar, that there's enough different that stuff dedicated to the UK audience should be considered, and that's why they're setting up this center. It says it's going to be located in the same building as Atari UK, and I'm not sure where that is. That would be interesting to find out where that was and, you know, what the building looks like now, because I just, I heard that Google bought most of the stuff in the old Atari campus, and that 1265 Boregas has been torn down. I'm sure it was a Commodore plot. There's the computer classroom section that says how to read a computer program by Frederick S. Langa. There's like a 50-line basic program, and they go through a painfully detailed description of, of what each line does. So for somebody who's very new to basic programming, this would be an interesting article to sort of decipher how a program is, you know, parsed and understood. There's an article about Atari Service. It says a nationwide factory-backed service for Atari home computers, and there it lists regional service centers. And interestingly, in this copy on an um, Internet Archive, there are four regional service centers listed. The first is Sunnyvale, you know, of course, they're in the regular Atari um, location. And there's one in Illinois, one in New Jersey, and one in Texas. And those three are scratched out, and the toll-free number for the Sunnyvale location has actually been corrected. So I don't know who owned this thing, and if they were just mad at the other three service centers, or if it was the person who owned this lived in the like California area and wanted to remember not to call the other ones accidentally. So there's an interesting story here that unfortunately we'll probably never learn. There's a little Christmas Carol's basic program that has a driver that's about 20 lines and a bunch of data statements to either play Deck the Halls, Jingle Bells, or Jolly Old St. Nicholas. So you'll end up typing in another, you know, 15 or 20 lines of data statements if you want to play one of those. In a previous issue, they asked for photos of your home computer setup, and it said they received so many that they've decided to share more of them. But unfortunately, they only share three. There's one that looks like it's in a living room with a 400 on a little rolly cart. 
There's another that looks like it's in like a den or a library with the 800 sitting kind of at an angle and there's two disk drives and a like monitor sitting at an angle as well and a printer's at more underneath at your feet. And the final one, in order to like truly live the idea that a computer will spit out recipes, one is set up in the corner of their kitchen. There's a request for an APX program contest. It says write a program that highlights the 1984 Olympics. So Atari was the like official computer of the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. It says APX will be celebrating the games. And it says all programs submitted to APX between now and October 1st, 1983 that focus on the summer winter Olympics will be eligible for a bonus prize in the winter 1983 judging. It says a chance to win an all-expense paid trip for two to LA, plus hotel, plus two three-day passes to the games, which take place between July 27th and August 13th, 1984. It says while they want traditional action games, we're specifically interested in programs stressing the strategic or instructional elements of Olympic events. And then they list all the games, you know, archery, track and field, basketball, blah, blah, blah. And it says start thinking about some strategy or instructional games along these lines. And it says look for more details in the spring APX product catalog due out in early March 1983. And that's really about it in the magazine here. There's a couple book reviews. There's Inside Atari Basic and a book review of your Atari computer. The inside back cover has the Atari gift catalog, more holiday gifts for the entire family. These like little novelty things like an Atari belt buckle and Atari pens, a little Atari like LCD sticky clock that you can, it has a picture of showing it right stuck on the, like, the cartridge door of the Atari 800 and centipede and caverns of Mars shirts and stuff and other, you know, Atari baseball caps and things. And then the back cover is an ad about the Atari 800 saying they've tripled the memory without touching the price. Keeping with the theme of Atari corporate stuff, let's listen to the APX catalog from our friend Kay. Hi, I'm Kay Sabitz, and we are going to dive into the Atari Program Exchange Winter 1982-1983 catalog. On the cover, we have a cozy, warm, indoor winter scene where people are coming into a home well-apportioned with friends, a fireplace, and plenty of Atari computers. There's several people coming into the house being greeted by a hostess, carrying gifts and wearing hats, and in the foreground are nine people, all men, standing around an Atari computer where one of the men uh, is playing the game Salmon Run. A few of the men are wearing fishing hats with the lures and everything, and one of the guys is even holding a fishing pole, so I, I guess some of them really don't understand how video games work, but they look like they're having fun watching their friend play Salmon Run on the Atari. Flipping around to the back cover, you see a different scene in the house. This is the kitchen area, where you see a bunch of people hanging out at this party. There are several children on the floor and a dog, and they're sitting there with their Atari on the floor playing a monkey on a tree. And then kind of a little farther back in the background, there are several people in the kitchen standing around where there's yet another Atari computer on the counter, and they're probably doing some sort of recipe filing or something. So apparently this house has at least three Atari computers. Good for them. This issue of the catalog contains 159 programs. The little editorial on page 4 says that we're especially pleased with the growing diversity and quality of our educational programs. Along with six more programs from the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, we have programs everyone from preschoolers on up will enjoy. The next page has the results of the Autumn Programming Contest. It notes that this quarter's first place winners were dominated by teenage authors. Three out of four are 18 or under. In these times when it can be hard for young people to find jobs, writing programs for APX may be a good way for them to turn a hobby into a source of income. It can be just as good a route for all ages, from teens to retirees. It notes that 18-year-old Scott Ludwig of Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii wrote Quarkson, a one- or two-player space game that combines arcade-style action with an intellectual challenge. The next page says, We're improving our user instructions. 
during this past quarter, we selected four of our most popular programs to experiment with improving the appearance of their accompanying user manuals. First, we redesigned the covers to include a four-color large photograph of the program's screen display. The back cover contains a complete program description, and because the authors are very important to us, we also feature a photograph and short biography of the program author. We've changed the insides, too. The instructions have been typeset and the layout revised to improve readability and ease locating information quickly. This will be the fourth variation of uh, Atari Program Exchange manual covers. It's the one that we call the large color screenshot version. The first version of manuals, which was used on very early programs, was simply a black and white printout. Then came the second version, which was three rainbow stripes, which was probably the most commonly used version. Version three has diagonal colored bars, and version four is that large color screenshot. There's another interesting special section here, a couple of pages, that say, A call for programs highlighting the 1984 Olympics. Because the Atari home computer is the official home computer of the 1984 Olympics, we'll be paying special attention to Olympics-related programs. All programs submitted to APX between now and October 1st, 1983 that focus on the Summer or Winter Olympic Games are eligible for a bonus prize in our Winter 1983 judging. Here's a chance to win an all-expense-paid trip for two to the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, plus hotel accommodations, and two three-day passes to the Games. It says, We'll be giving special consideration to the Summer Games, but we'll also consider programs related to Winter Olympic sports. The Summer Games are... Then it lists the 24 Summer Games, from archery to wrestling. Okay, let's get into looking at the new programs. There are no new programs in the personal finance and record-keeping category, but in the business and professional applications category, there are two new programs. Fog Index by Ingrid Langevin won second prize in this category. It says, use the Fog Index to analyze text readability. Many editors and writers rely on the Gunning Fog Readability Formula, commonly known as the Fog Index, to test whether text is geared toward the appropriate reading level. The Fog Formula analyzes reading level based on word complexity and sentence length. Fog Index automates this analysis, saving you time and effort. Program was $15.95, available on diskette only, requires the Atari basic language cartridge, and although it says the author invites written questions and comments, I'm not sure about that because I have been unable to find her to interview her. The other new program in this category, winning first prize, is Real Estate Cash Flow Analysis by Richard K. Lindgren. You don't have to be a financial wizard to invest successfully in real estate. The main concerns in property investments are cash generated and required, the tax consequences, and the relative worth of the property compared to other investments. Your Atari home computer and real estate cash flow analysis can help relieve you of the tedious mathematical calculations needed to evaluate these matters, and they can organize the information required so you can focus on what if questions, what if interest rates change, what if my vacancy rate goes up, what if I have to pay an extra 10% for the property. This program is $22.95, available on diskette only, and also requires the Atari basic cartridge. There's nothing new in the personal interest and development category, but in the education category, there certainly is. Starting with the first prize winner in this category, Typo Attack by David Bueller, who was 16 years old at the time. Type the right key and hit the typos. Do you remember the boring drills and practices you endured to increase your typing speed? Too bad typo attack wasn't around then, but it's not too late to enjoy this fast-paced game for practicing locating keys on the keyboard and for improving your touch typing speed and skill. Typo attack will appeal to beginning and professional typists alike and will probably convert non-typists as well. This program is $29.95, was available both on cassette and diskette. In the future, it will be converted to a cartridge and be sold as an Atari-branded product on cart as well. I want to point out that in addition to being 16 years old, David Bueller programmed this assembly language game on an Atari 400 computer with the Atari Assembler Editor cartridge. Yikes. 
The second prize winner in this category is the Magic Melody Box by W. Wes Horlacher. The Magic Melody Box is a fast, easy, and fun way to introduce young and old people to music composition. Creating a four-voice, harmonized song involves only two simple steps. Use a joystick controller first to select one of 12 rhythm patterns, and then draw a melody line in the Magic Box. As you draw, the notes play, and you can back up and redraw your melody at any time. This program requires basic and a joystick controller, costs $15.95, and was available on both cassette and diskette. The third place prize winner in this category is I'm Different by Kathleen and Philip Berg, colorful workbook-style exercises for preschoolers. Here's a first for APX, our first Atari pilot program. Designed by an experienced teacher and professional programmer, it's one preschoolers are sure to enjoy. I'm Different introduces the concepts of same and different in an entertaining, non-competitive game that doesn't keep score and has no time limit. This one requires the Atari Pilot cartridge, which I think is a big hurdle because it was relatively unpopular compared to Atari Basic and an Atari joystick controller. It cost $22.95 and was available on diskette. Also new in this category is Monkey Up a Tree by Joe Grand. It's lunchtime in the jungle, and a little monkey has found a tree with lots of ripe bananas. The only way the monkey can climb the tree to reach the bananas is for you to solve arithmetic problems. It's up to you to help the monkey get its lunch today. Each time an addition, subtraction, multiplication, or division problem appears below the tree, you type the answer. If you're right, the monkey can climb partway up the tree. If you miss an answer or take too much time, the monkey slides down a bit and the right answer displays so you can study it. The monkey is very hungry today and wants three bananas for lunch, but he can grab just one on each trip up the tree. Only you can help make a hungry monkey happy and win the game. This program also requires Atari Basic and costs $22.95. It was available on disc and cassette. Rounding out the education category are five new programs from the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium. Music 2, Rhythm and Pitch, and Music 3, Scales and Chords, are new additions to the catalog. Music 1, Terms and Notations, was new in a previous catalog, as well as Earth Science, a disc containing five programs, teaching about earthquakes, minerals, and solar distance. There's also geography and prefixes, containing seven programs about writing development. All five of those programs were available on disc only and cost $29.95 each. And there's an odd note here. It says, please note, MECC programs are usable only with Atari 810 disk drives having a data separator circuit. Drives with a blue DS sticker on the disk drive carton have this circuit. Huh, I wonder if that has something to do with the copy protection that they used. Let's see, looking at an old version of Michael Curran's Atari 8-bit FAC, it says 810 drives manufactured after September 1st, 1981, shipped with an external data separator board, which improves the drive's ability to distinguish between data pulses and clocked pulses on the disk, lowering the chance of a misread. It is installed in the sideboard where the FDC chip would otherwise be installed. The external data separator board was also offered as an upgrade for earlier 810 drives. Hmm, now I know. Moving on to the entertainment category where there's lots of new things. It starts with Quarkson by 18-year-old Scott Ludwig, which won the first prize award in this category. Break through the boundary and destroy the droids. You no sooner discover droids in a new galaxy, Quarkson, when your scanner picks up enemy movement. Headquarters orders you to defend the droids against enemy attack. You only have one hunter-killer spaceship and your wits to outmaneuver both the enemy ship and the tricky elements unique to Quarkson's atmosphere. Your primary objective is to fire your laser through randomly occurring openings in the center boundary line to break through the multi-layered blockade protecting the enemy's droids who want to take over the galaxy. At the same time, the enemy is trying to wipe out your droids. In a fairly unique feature, this game has one or two player options, or you can just let the computer fight the battle against itself. It costs $29.95 and was available on both cassette and disc. All in machine language requires a joystick controller. In second prize in the entertainment category, Air Raid by Chuck Gibke. Head off the bombers before they reach the city. 
It's another high-speed machine language game, also $30. And in third place, Phobos by Greg Christensen. This is his follow-on to Caverns of Mars. The catalog says, Master 16 levels of defense. Did you wear out your joystick controller playing Caverns of Mars? If so, run right out and buy another one. Greg Christensen has done it again. He's traveled even farther into the cosmos to bring us Phobos, Mars's closest and largest moon, where a group of renegade Martians have set up a command center. You must cut through 16 levels of defense to destroy the control center buried deep in the core of Phobos. It says the graphic sound and design are all along the lines of Caverns of Mars and are all very good. This one was on diskette only, $29.95. Also new in this category is Yachtman, a Yahtzee clone. Game show, a clone of the Family Feud TV game. Pushkey, a game in which you earn points by pushing clouds around. And Gridiron Glory, a two-player professional football simulation played from a coach's perspective. In the system software category, in first place is Basic XA by Thomas Newton. Development tools for Atari Basic programmers that includes a variable lister, the ability to change variable names, delete a range of lines, renumber the program, check for bad go-to statements, and that sort of thing. In second place is the Deep Blue Sea Compiler an implementation of the C programming language by Jack Palovich. Second place. The guy ported an entire C compiler to 6502 and only won the second place prize. Life is unfair. Also new in this category is Deep Blue Secrets, which is the 6502 source code for Deep Blue Sea, which costs the same amount as the program itself, so $39.95 for Deep Blue Sea, and if you want, another $39.95 for the source code. There seems to be two third-place winners, so I guess it's a tie, between Music Player by James Bayliss, an easy way to add music to your programs, and Disk Menu by Al Harburg, load basic or machine language programs with a single keystroke. And that is all the new software in this category, and actually in the whole catalog. Remember, though, from the disclaimer that most APX programs have been written by people not employed by Atari. The programs we select for APX offer something of value that we want to make available to Atari home computer owners. To offer these programs to the widest number of people economically, we don't put APX products through rigorous testing. Therefore, APX products are sold as is, and we do not guarantee them in any way. In particular, we make no warranty, express or implied, including warranties of merchantability and fitness for a particular purpose. We are not liable for any losses or damages of any kind that result from the use of an APX product. Yeah, you should probably keep that in mind before you lose your shirt flipping houses using the real estate cash flow analysis software. And thanks. I appreciate Kay being our APX correspondent here. You can hear more of them on the Antic podcast, of course. Unfortunately, we only have four more catalogs to go in the life of APX. And unlike most things Atari, we can't blame Jack Trammell for killing it. Instead, it was killed after Ray Kassar left Atari and was replaced by James Morgan. And James Morgan, as CEO, then killed it, saying that Atari wasn't in the mail-order business anymore. Some APX titles moved over to Antic, and Antic had a software catalog for the rest of the life of the magazine, I believe. But that's a story for another day. Let's look at Byte, the Small Systems Journal. December 1982, Volume 7, Number 12. $2.95 in the US, $3.15 in Canada, £1.85 in the UK. It says Game Plan 1982. That's the only text on the cover, and it's got a nice Robert Tinney artwork. It's a Starfield background. There's this red grid outline that kind of extends from the lower right and kind of going away to the upper left. And on it are these little three-dimensional representations of pixelized, like, sprites. They're kind of vaguely reminiscent of some games. Like, there's a couple hockey player people. There's a couple figures look like they might be from Berserk, a couple from Space Invaders, a couple little airplane things, like, from, I don't know, air-sea battle, maybe. And there's one that looks like the ship from Ripoff firing a laser blast, and I can imagine the pew-pew as it hits something and blows up another ship that's kind of off this little grid. There's an astounding 596 pages in this issue. 
Unusually, the table of contents shows a bunch of interesting things for the Atari, including design techniques and ideals for computer games by Chris Crawford, saying Atari's prized and prolific creator of games discusses some of the special techniques he uses. And there's a character editor for the Atari by Tim Kilby. It says explore Atari's Antic 4 and 5 modes. And there's an article, The Coinless Arcade, by Pamela Clark and Greg Williams. It says, with so many games available for microcomputers and cartridge systems, you can play forever, and one would hope that there's some Atari stuff in there. There's the second and first place entries in their Byte Game Contest. doesn't say what system they're for here in the table of contents, but unfortunately I looked ahead and they're both for the Apple, so we will skip them. Some non-Atari stuff that we might cover, if I get there and they're interesting. There's a couple articles by Robert Mogg about electronic music and computer music, so I might do a little drive-by of those, see what they're like. And there's an article about the Vectrex arcade system by Pamela Clark that we'll maybe take a quick look at. The editorial is by Pamela Clark, the technical editor. It's titled The Play's the Thing, saying that in 1982, was, this was like the year when video game awareness and advertisements sort of went beyond the niche market and became, like, ubiquitous, saying primetime television documentaries have focused on the game invasion and its origins. Communities around the country picket arcade parlors in an attempt to keep the young from the electronic clutches. And video game commercials appear almost as frequently as pitches for laundry detergent. Game magazines fill the racks at supermarkets. Will 1982 be remembered as the year games got us? It says the microcomputer gives an aura of respectability and therefore makes game playing an acceptable adult pastime, saying that, you know, although computers can do a lot of stuff, it is uniquely suited to game playing. For many of us, it represents a mature approach to play in the privacy of our homes because there's so many you know, different types of games and you can proceed at your own pace. There's not necessarily the sort of stigma or fear of being discovered as a game player to that you don't have to frequent arcades. And essentially, you don't have to make like a spectacle of your inability to play. That is one of the draws, I think, is the implication of this. And in a nod to the, all the terrible predictions from the Creative Computing article of last episode, it says, After all, if robots do all the work, we'll need something to do. Then she starts to look at some of the games and saying that few games really broke new ground in 1982. Sort of this trend toward uniformity is a result of commercial marketing trends and then the design imbalance of most games, she says. Kind of noting that a lot of the games look for what's currently popular and then just copy that ad nauseum. And then copies of copies lead to a dilution of the product, which is sort of prescient of the video game crash. You know, all the sort of terrible knockoffs that came to the Atari 2600, diluting the market and then causing the prices to then crash. The second reason she gets into about sort of the blandness of games is the background of game designers, saying that most of the current designers acquired their computer skills before they began tinkering with games saying they make their games to fit the machine, and that the computer itself is limiting game design. Essentially, it looks like saying that the current generation of computer hardware is not sufficient to the kind of games that she is envisioning, because then she goes on and talks about video discs and holography and some sort of very far-off things that you know wouldn't be available in 1982. So it went in an entirely different direction than where I thought she was going to go, thinking that maybe she'd talk about, you know, the need for more diverse writers of games rather than the hardware potential being the limiting factor. Then we get into the Game Plan 1982 section. This covers 96 pages in the magazine, although whatever you guess as the number of ads in those 96 pages is going to be low. I guarantee that. There's a section called the Coinless Arcade Rediscovered by Pamela Clark and Greg Williams. Most are like quarter-page reviews with a screenshot and then a paragraph's worth of text. There are several for the Atari. There's Protector, Legionnaire, and Crossfire that I'm familiar with, and one that I wasn't familiar with called Cyborg by Med System Software. 
It appears to be kind of a Robotron sort of game from the description, but it looks like it may be unarchived. It's not on Atari Mania, and it's not in any of the archives that I'm able to search right now. So yeah, if anybody knows the whereabouts of Cyborg by MedSystem Software, please let people know. There are several other known Cyborgs, but none that match this 1982 release from MedSystem Software. It's a shame if it's not been discovered by now, most likely it's probably been lost. There's a couple of other little mini-reviews for games available on the 400-800 that are also on other platforms like Crush, Crumble, and Chomp and Sea Dragon. The final two pages are for console systems. There's mostly VCS games, but there's a couple for the Intellivision. There's a two-page review, plus a lot of pictures, talking about the Vectrex system. Very positive review, saying the display has to be seen to be believed, and that it's unusual and refreshing to see a product appear on the market with its software ready to run, because they talk about like nine games being available right at the outset. In a weird sort of interlude, there's a, a two-page article that says Bored to Death, B-O-A-R-D, where it shows pictures of 12 motherboards and little clues underneath them, and you're trying to guess what computer the motherboard comes from. Like, for instance, there's one that's uh, a picture of something from the top view, and it looks like it has, like, four DB9s on one side and a cartridge connector right in the middle, and the clue is Go Players Beware, which I correctly identified as the Atari 400 motherboard because it only has one RAM slot and then the slot for the personality board. I got one other one, the Apple II motherboard, but everything else, no clue. I'm reading from my paper copy of the magazine here, so I'm holding them up to the microphone so you can check them out, see what you can guess. But let me tell you, you're going to have to know your stuff, because I checked the answer key in the back of the magazine, and there's some esoteric systems in here, so good luck on this quiz. Then we come to an article by Chris Crawford, Design Techniques and Ideals for Computer Games. It's a seven-page article over 12 pages in the magazine, so less than their usual 50% ads. And it's got a picture of Chris Crawford on the second page, and then a picture of a couple of his games, Legionnaire and Scram. And this is him giving his advice on game design as an art form, the techniques that he's used as an example for you, the software designer, the game designer, to develop your own techniques, and perhaps use some of these as inspiration. It's broken up into two main sections. One is solitaire games, you know, a player against the computer. And then there's another one for player versus player type games, you know, multiplayer games where the computer is not so much doing the um, artificial intelligence for the opponents. The majority of the article is on solitaire games, though, so player versus computer and how the computer can simulate a good opponent. He talks about four techniques, vast resources, artificial reckoning, limited information, and pace. So vast resources is what, what he calls like the imbalance between what the player has available and what the computer is challenging the player with. He says this is the bulk of like arcade games where, and he throws out like Asteroids, Space Invaders, Centipede, Missile Command, Tempest, all these games that try to overwhelm the opponent with just huge numbers of enemy forces. He says the benefits of this design are sort of the computer being the expected winner and the player being the underdog, and everybody likes the underdog beating the, you know, big bully, saying that most people would rather win as an underdog than as an equal. And he says the other big benefit of this is it's easy, because making the computer player intelligent, which, you know, he'll spend the rest of the article kind of going over, is difficult, but making a bunch of things do very simple, like attack patterns, is very easy. But then he says the disadvantage of this is huge in that it's simple to do, and he says everybody can do it. It smacks of laziness and lack of determination. 
in the artificial reckoning category, which is sort of his version of artificial intelligence, because he said uh, artificial intelligence is not well understood, not well enough to be used in this context. Uh, you know, in '82 here, obviously, that's there's been lots of progress in that since. But he says to call this stuff right now in '82 as artificial intelligence is arrogant and indeed misleading. So he says he uses the less ambitious term artificial reckoning. He says the first aim of artificial reckoning is to produce reasonable behavior. So he says the computer should not drive its tanks over cliffs, crash spaceships into each other, or pause to rest directly in front of the human's guns. So in other words, the computer shouldn't act stupid. He says one possible way to avoid stupidity is to test all the stupid things and don't do those. But that approach sort of necessarily limits you to only the stupidity that you've thought of in advance. He said a better way is to develop a general algorithm that obviates the most absurd moves, he says. The second requirement of artificial reckoning is unpredictability, saying that it's not good for the human to be able to always tell what the computer's going to do. He says algorithms that do this better consider more than just like, say, let's find the nearest opponent and attack it. One way is to not necessarily go after the nearest enemy unit, but the one that presents the biggest threat, taking into account, you know, like distance, terrain, uh, speed of the enemy, or some other combination of factors that's not just one simple thing. He says there's unlikely to be a, like an all-purpose algorithm that will do this, so you have to get down to domain-specific stuff. He said the best general solution he's found so far is a point system that is not necessarily fixed, though, that depends on changes in the game. For example, by calculating some danger coefficient, where each enemy is then ranked by a number of factors, you know, as he says, like distance, speed, perhaps known damage to that enemy, and that if you want to get even more detailed, you can go into a not just a magnitude, what he calls a scalar field, but also a vector field, including the direction of the danger. And then so you have this additional parameter that you can then use to make better or at least less stupid decisions. He talks about another technique to achieve reasonable behavior, and that is change the design of the game. He has an example of his game Tanktix. said he encountered a problem with certain lakes, said if the computer approached a U-shaped lake from the wrong direction, it would drive the tanks to the end of the peninsula formed by the U, and then it would see water blocking its forward progress, back you know, back up, change direction, but then still get stuck, so it would keep driving to the end of this peninsula and get stuck. And he said, I expended a great deal of time working on the smarter artificial reckoning routine, but after much wasted effort, I discovered a better solution. Delete the U-shaped lakes from the map. Essentially saying the hard part is recognizing that stuff before you waste too much time on things that can be corrected at the design stage. And then, you know, knowing when to give up and saying, well, it's just not worth it. And maybe the user won't even notice that there aren't any U-shaped lakes, for example. He talks a little bit about algorithms, saying that their algorithms will, by necessity, be limited to, like, particular small scopes, and you might have to chain algorithms together to get enemy logic to work. But that transition between algorithms can cause, and he used an example, in Legionnaire, he had three different algorithms that would control the enemy behavior. But at the point of switching, you know, between like the attack and the flee algorithm, there are some conditions that caused, in his initial version, the enemy units to charge up like they were going to attack and transition to a different algorithm and then run away and flee and then transition to another one again. And so just the, he said the barbarian units would essentially dance back and forth between attacking and fleeing. So he eventually had to rewrite the whole algorithm and, and eliminate that transition by coming up with a different sort of single algorithm that handled what had previously be been written as three algorithms. His third topic on computer opponents is limited information, saying another way to make up for the computer's lack of intelligence is to limit the amount of information that the human can see. 
essentially like a fog of war or a little zone around the player outside of which the player can't get information as either as quickly or at all until the player moves or somehow finds a way to get additional information. The final technique he talks about here is pace, that it provides another way to even the balance. The human may be smart, but the computer is faster. So if the pace is fast enough, the human won't be able to employ the superior processing ability that the computer doesn't have. However, he says this technique is used a lot and perhaps too often simply because it's easy to do. And his sort of point, I think, overall in this in this article is the art of game design is not to do the easiest thing, but to do the clever thing. And that the clever game designer is the one who will produce the you know unique, memorable games rather than just the slew of more commonplace games that could have been designed by, shall we say, people with less artistic craft. Then he gets into the section where he now talks about like two-player games, so not necessarily a computer opponent, but one that may like optionally have a computer opponent. And this is in a style he calls symmetric games. A symmetric game where, you know, each side is balanced or they even have the same, like, pieces just on different sides. And, of course, he mentions, you know, the typical board-style games as well as, like, combat for the 2600 or basketball. And then, interestingly, he mentions Dog Days, the game by Gray Chang, as a symmetric game because each player, you know, controls one dog and they're both trying to do the same thing. Each player has the same goal and neither has an advantage over the other. Symmetric games have an advantage, there's simplicity, but it's also their weakness. He says because any strategy that one player can use, the other player can copy. And he says success drives not from planning, but from execution. So I guess he's saying like the more physically talented game player will then win. He says because of the weakness of symmetric games, that game designers can design some asymmetry into it, whereas each player then has some combination of strengths and weaknesses that the other player does not have. Or another way is to have some other asymmetry, and he describes like a risk-like game where players choose different territories, and just the combination of whatever territories that one player chooses versus the other creates an asymmetry. Designing a fully asymmetric game is another option, and he talks about an example like Solitaire, you know, the card game, saying that the human gets to use their thinking power and planning power, while the computer gets more resources to compensate for the lack of intelligence. He talks about the advantage of asymmetry resulting in what he calls non-transitive or triangular relationships. And he says non-transitivity can be illustrated by the game Rock, Paper, Scissors. You know, rock gets defeated by paper, paper gets defeated by scissors, but scissors gets defeated by rock. And then he says a Rock, Paper, Scissors game with binary outcomes can only happen with three components. Clearly being unaware of Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, Spock which has five components, but yet resulting in uh, binary outcomes. Well, and a draw, of course, I guess. But I guess the reason that Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, Spock was invented was to minimize or reduce the amount of times you end up in a tie. So apparently Sam Cass and Karen Brela invented this game, initially called Rock, Paper, Scissors, Spock, Lizard. And I guess it was popularized in the Big Bang Theory as Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, Spock. Anyway, I'll include a link in the show notes to that initial creation of Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, Spock, proving Chris Crawford incorrect. But back to the advantages of these non-transitive concepts, saying that one of the reasons that this is a good technique for game design is that it allows indirect action, like you might need to go through several steps to attack the enemy. Or, and then he has an example from Battlezone, you know, the arcade game where you're driving a tank and you're having another tank as your target, but then the saucer appears. And so you have to make a decision. Do you go for the high points of the saucer and potentially expose yourself to attack by the tank? Or do you ignore that and just go for the tank, knowing that you'll get fewer points than if you get the saucer? 
Another advantage of asymmetry and these triangular relationships is that it allows for mixed offensive and defensive capabilities. Whereas if a pure binary, you know, attack versus defend says that, you know, one person who's always the defender only has opportunity to lose, never to gain. But by mixing both sides, having some opportunities to attack and some to defend, it results in indirect approaches to the whole battle scenario, resulting in trade-offs and creating what he says is far richer and subtler interactions. He then talks about learning curves of games and how the player should feel like their score reflects the sort of amount of difficulty it's gone into to get to that place. And then he describes like a typical game would have like sort of a constantly increasing score as you progress, whereas something where the score didn't progress very much and then suddenly shot up would be indicative of a game that had a really tough learning curve, whereas a game that shot up early is a game that's easy to learn. Every like fast jump up, he equates to learning some trick of the game. And so if there's a lot of these sharp rises followed by steady, more constant areas, each sharp rise sort of indicates another trick that's been learned. So if a game has many sharp rises, there's lots of little tricks. He says the goal of the learning curve is to have it at least continually rising to make the player feels like feel like they're progressing through the game. And essentially too many places of flat scoring or a lack of progression will get people frustrated and, you know, even quit the game. And finally, he talks about the illusion of winnability, saying that the best games provide players of multiple skill levels the idea that they can beat the game. His example is Pac-Man saying that even beginning players think that they have a chance to win, and expert players also think they have a chance to win. Whereas the opposite, a game like Tempest, he says, appears ridiculously complicated to the beginning player, and therefore might scare away the potential audience. He talks about a clean versus dirty game, but I don't think he means dirty as in cheating. He means clean as in everything's there for the player to discover, where a dirty game is like things are hidden, which he equates to something more like there's a gotcha moment where he says some complicating detail or hidden factor that the player isn't able to discover unless, you know, something unusual happens, or maybe even something out of their control. And related to this, he says if players perceive that the failure is a result of their own limitations, or he says if it requires a superhuman performance, then they may give up. However, if players perceive failure is as a result of correctable errors on their part, they'll continue with the game. And in summary, he says all these ideas should not be used in grab bag fashion. He says, like, only taken together do they constitute the elusive element we call technique. Technique is a part of the artist's signature, as important as theme. If you would be a computer game designer, you must establish and develop your own technique. As usual from a Chris Crawford article, a lot of insights and and well-thought-out and well-reasoned arguments. We then come to the Byte Game Contest, the second and first place, people. Neither is for the Atari. The first is for the Apple, and the second is for some unnamed system. Doesn't say, but it's written in fourth, so perhaps that means it's more portable. Interestingly, a lot of other fourth listings I've seen have been broken up into pages, and this one's not. It's just it's a continual like listing of just fourth source code. One of the problems I find with fourth is the argument order. It's a stack-based language, so you put the arguments first and then the function call. It's like those old HP calculators that were RPN, reverse Polish notation, where you didn't have to use parentheses, but you'd have to figure out, you know, the order that you'd have to stuff things on the stack and then the order that it would pop things off in order to get the correct result, rather than sort of the algebraic notation of, you know, parentheses and infix operators. Anyway, for some reason, having it listed out this way, where it's a continual listing rather than broken up into screens, it seems to be a little more readable, which is not to say understandable. 
All right, my brain hurts, so we'll leave fourth for now. Move on to the next article, which is Ricochet, which is a game review by Greg Williams, the senior editor. And this is not the first time I've seen Ricochet. There were previous episode, I can't remember which one, in Creative Computing, also had a glowing re- review of Ricochet, and this is the same. And so again, I tried it. I, I, it's a basic program, so it's, it's kind of slow, and it doesn't really lend well to like a live play because it's, you know, it doesn't have a lot of sound going on. But I really, really, really want to try and get this game so I can, you know, give it a good evaluation. But the controls are very finicky, I found. It's a two-player turn-based game. It's a single screen, and you've got a grid of dots on the screen in like a diamond pattern. One player controls the left-hand side of the screen, and one player controls the right-hand side of the screen. And on these dots in the diamond pattern, you put these little, um, what they call bumpers, which are either oriented vertically or horizontally. And then you have launchers. You each have a launcher on the top of the bottom on your side. You launch a ball and it goes diagonally, and whenever it hits one of these bumpers, it changes direction 90 degrees. And the object is to disable your opponent's launchers on the other side of the screen. And you get points for the number of bumpers that you hit. It seems intriguing. The controls are not intuitive. It seems to me you should be able to move like your cursor on any bumper you want and then move it wherever you want. But you use the joystick and you, you go like up and down on the joystick to change bumpers, but you can't go back to a previous bumper that I found. And moving up cycles through the bumper list. It doesn't actually move a cursor around. The bumpers also have letters and there was some keyboard control, but I couldn't get the keyboard control to work. So I don't know. It's, it's seriously, it's a super glowing review. And I wish I could try it out. It's almost as if I would like to look for a, a, a clone of this game, you know, with a touchscreen interface or something and, and try it on the phone. But the reviewer says, I cannot find enough good things to say about Ricochet. It's easily the most original game I've seen this year. It's fun to play. And on top of that, it's very modestly priced, under $20. And over this four-page review, it takes a while to sort of describe the game. And then in the conclusion section, it says, I can tell from my own experience with game development that Ricochet is well-designed and polished for maximum playability. Such attention to detail is rare. Most people release a game as soon as the program is free of programming errors. Of course, that accounts for the countless mediocre games that are being sold today. But then saying, you know, because Ricochet is not one of these mediocre games. It says, as a result, you enjoy playing Ricochet even if you lose. Leave the game feeling satisfied instead of embittered. And then it says, Ricochet is not only a fantastic strategy game, but a reasonably priced one as well. Arcade game enthusiasts take note, it is neither visually stunning nor conventional arcade variety. And it says automated simulations should be commended for creating a totally new kind of game that takes advantage of the computer's unique strengths and for selling at a lower price than it could command. And the concluding sentence is, if Ricochet is indicative of automated simulations offerings, I eagerly await the company's next release. Automated simulations, as you might remember, is going to be renamed Epix, and one of the next releases is going to be Jumpman. I will certainly let you know the first time I see a Jumpman ad come up in one of the magazines. Although, as a spoiler alert, if you listen to the 5200 specials I'm doing here, the 1983 special part one will contain a Jumpman ad. There's an article on action games for the VIC-20, and then there's a review of Deadline. It even includes a couple clues for Deadline, so you don't have to buy the Invisi clues necessarily if these eight clues will get you by. That's really it for the Byte Game Grid section. There's one more article we'll cover in sort of detail in this magazine, and that's the Character Editor for the Atari by Tim Kilby of Sperryville, Virginia. It says, design special characters or graphic symbols while exploring antics modes 4 and 5. Article opens saying, one of the most powerful features of the Atari 400 and 800 computers is that they allow you to redefine the character set. This feature uses less memory than alternative graphics modes and allows easy manipulation of characters in the form of text strings. It says many of your favorite computer games use character graphics in basic mode 1 or the hardware-only antic 4 mode. 
In this article, I shall explain how to use the elusive five-color Antic 4 mode because it offers the greatest graphics resolution and design challenge. And then spends a couple columns of text sort of defining what character sets are all about, how they appear in normal graphics modes, and then how they appear in the Antic 4 modes, where instead of one pixel being on or off, it uses neighboring pairs of pixels to determine a color. And then also, of course, if you use the inverse, then you get that fifth color. The focus of the article is this character set editor that's written in BASIC. It's about 200 lines of code, and the last page or so of text describes how to use the program in, in words. There's no screenshot of the actual program itself. But it says, plug a joystick into port 1 and you're ready to design. The article's over parts of 7 pages out of like, you know, 12 pages worth of Byte. And I keep thinking, you know, this would be like the last major Atari thing we see in Byte. But it turns out it's not. There's plenty more coming in 83, 84, even in 85. Then Byte kind of switches to the SD coverage. But Kay Savitz pulled out like all the Atari references in all Byte magazines and put it up on archive.org. So I'll include a link in the show notes to that huge section. It's like 729 pages of Atari references in Byte. We're pretty much done with Atari references in this Byte. Oh, there's a couple other things I'm going to cover briefly. One is the article, A Brief Introduction to Electronic Music Synthesizers by Robert Mogg. And he was the inventor of the first commercial electronic music synthesizer. And I don't know about, much about music production. Well, I know nothing about music production. Let's put it that way. And this article is, is fairly technical in terms of, you know, they list electronic you know diagrams and stuff, how the music is produced. I wanted to mention it because Wendy Carlos was one of the people who worked with Mog to refine the synthesizer, and her music was used in Tron. She composed the soundtrack. And in all the Tron articles we covered, you know, in the last several episodes of the podcast, none of them mentioned Wendy Carlos, and the soundtrack of Tron is amazing. You know, it's one of those that has such a hook, you know, I can remember the theme song and I can recall it in my head at any time. Her songs are also, of course, used in the arcade game Tron. I'll include links in the show notes to a bunch of websites about women in electronic music, as well as her website, wendycarlos.com, where it includes a bunch of stuff about her famous record, Switched On Bach, which is one of the earliest electronic music recordings that received widespread acclaim and won several Grammys. And another link in the show notes I'll include is to a documentary film, Sisters with Transistors, that is apparently on super limited release. I can't find a way to stream it now. But it's all about female electronic music pioneers and the obvious discrimination they suffered in the music industry. So I hope to watch that at some point. As for the rest of Byte magazine, if you like the Apple III, they've got a 34-page article titled A Little Apple Sauce with Your Pascal. Sauce is the sophisticated operating system of the Apple III computer. So yeah, if you like your Apple III's with Pascal, there's a big old article for you. Near the end of the magazine, there's a 14-page section, the Byte Index Update, so January 1982 to December 1982, and this is an index of all the articles that have been published in Byte. And handily, they're broken out by machine type, so there's a there's an Atari section. It's not very big, unfortunately. There's only like 12 or 15 entries, but it references you know, advanced Star Raider tactics and strategies that we've covered before, all the Atari tutorials from Chris Crawford, the character editor that we just have had this issue. It's much smaller than the Apple II category because that's actually broken out into multiple sections. It covers probably an entire page, and they've got sections on graphics, hardware reviews, programming instructions, software reviews. But we can take heart at least that the Atari section is larger than the Commodore 64 section because there isn't a Commodore 64 section. Which, unfortunately, I'm sure will be rectified in the 1983 update to the Byte Index here. There's nothing entirely related in the new product section, and the only interesting thing really is an announcement of an IBM-compatible, a portable computer from Compaq. 
at a featherweight 28 pounds. It includes a 9-inch diagonal high-resolution display of 29 lines by 80 characters. The computer uses MS-DOS 1.1, and GW Basic comes with 128K of RAM, expandable to 256. Includes one 320K double-sided double-density disk drive for the low, low retail price of $29.95. It says initial availability should be in January. So I think this might be the first reference we've seen to a compact computer. That'll do it for Byte, and on the back cover is an ad for the color computer. It says, all Radio Shack TRS-80 color computers cut $100, as low as $299.95. Less TV, it says. Let's take a look at computer and video games for December 1982, 75 pence on the cover price, 116 pages in the issue, and a sash on the corner says, Electronic Games Christmas Special. And the background is kind of a pixelated version of a Space Invaders type game, except they're invading Santa Clauses coming down, and the UFO is replaced by Santa's sleigh being pulled by a reindeer. The barriers that you normally hide behind are instead snow-covered houses. And on the bottom it says Star Guard, Space Roller, and games for the ZX81, Vic, Tandy, BBC, and many more. Only one reference to the Atari in the table of contents, a game called Airlock, that we will check out. Nothing Atari-related in the new games section. There's a reference to that pie mania that we talked about several issues ago, which is that treasure that's buried in a metaphorical time and space. It's for the ZX Spectrum, but they say versions in the pipeline for the BBC and the Dragon, but not the Atari. Before we get into the Atari stuff, we run into a surprise. It's the game Starguard by my friend Neil. It runs on a 24K Apple II, about 350 lines of Applesoft Basic. And much like Neil's last game that we talked about in episode 27, the Worm War 1 episode, computers and video games took some liberties in uh, creating a backstory for the game. So the backstory is, you can tell it's almost Christmas. Even our favorite friends, the aliens, are getting into the festive spirit. Seems that the best-selling gift this year is a space pod, and our little aliens just can't get enough of them. Saying that some aliens are stealing stuff, and you're an employee of Santa's intergalactic branch, and your job is to defend these pods from the marauding aliens. It then describes the game, and unfortunately it's not archived anywhere that I can find on the Apple II sites, and Neil doesn't have a copy. So the description is, the game comes in two parts. You first blast away at multi-armed aliens as they attempt to steal pods, and if you manage to hit it before it reaches the end of the screen, you'll get the pod back. And it says in part two, which starts after the third multi-armed alien is shot, your task is collect pods that have been dropped. And it says you must do this quickly as the aliens have a nasty habit of exploding. And then if you manage to get through unscathed, your game starts again with your ship at reduced power until you reach 6,000 points when you will be refueled. It's got an amusing little piece of art at the top half of the page. It has a small green alien dressed in a Santa cap that's vaguely sort of crustacean slash bug. And I guess that's sort of be sort of your avatar because it has a Santa cap, but in its hands is like an arrow that it's like stabbing this larger alien, a pink crustacean-y sort of alien with kind of a smiley slash grimace on his face with eyeballs looking around, six of its eight arms holding a, like, cereal box that says Space Pods on it, and its final two arms are actually legs that are running away. It's a funny little piece of art, and it notes the illustrator is Darian Cross. From Neil himself, I have the info that the center of the screen had the pods, and he said the bad guys come in from one side at a time and try to move through the pods and steal one. He said, your ship is in constant motion diagonally and bounce off the screen edges, and that your shots only fired horizontally, so you had to fire at the alien when you were in line with them, like vertically. You know, so as your ship's moving diagonally, either up or down, when you were in the same horizontal line as the alien, that's when you had to shoot. Like his other game we talked about, he wrote it on the computer labs at his secondary school on the Apple IIs there, 
he says he looks back on it now. He sees lots of things that could have been improved because he said one of the things that happens is that when you fire a shot, everything else stops as the shot moves across the screen. One of the things he was proud of, though, is the way they did explosions back then. So they created Applesoft basic shapes you know, using shape tables and then would draw in exclusive or mode, which would cause pixels to appear and then disappear as the shape was rotated. But as long as you drew the thing twice in every spot, ultimately all the pixels would get erased. So the Applesoft version of graphic violence. So thanks, Neil, for sharing with me the details behind that game. And I only wish there were archived somewhere. Because while I like retro stuff, I don't like retro stuff well enough to type stuff in anymore. The only Atari article does appear to be that game, Airlock. It says it runs a 24K Atari 400-800 with joystick by Steven Linger. It appears to be some sort of multi-screen maze game. It describes as rooms that have doors opening and closing all over the place, and that touching walls proves fatal. So it says you must keep moving and always take the exit presented to you. Try not to get trapped. It looks to be about 300 lines of basic. If you've been following along with the 5200 specials, you'll know that I decided not to look at any of the British publications because the 5200 wasn't available. Well, it turns out that there is a mention of the 5200 here in this here issue. It's referenced here as System X, seeing it's a hot topic and Atari's still not telling us much about it. It says, we have managed to glean a picture, and they insert the sort of a crop version of the standard picture that we've seen where the console is kind of sitting at an angle, there's a joystick in front of it, and the cartridge, I mean, it's too small to see the writing on the cartridge, but it, it seems appears to be the same picture that they've used, where the cartridge is not plugged in all the way vertically, like you would stick it in, it's like kind of leaning in the cartridge slot, so you see more of the cartridge labeled than you normally would. It says they've got a few facts about the machine, which has been nicknamed the Super Game. It says remote control joysticks are one feature on the new system, and it will also have a tracker ball control, it says. It says 12 cartridges in the initial range, and graphics will be similar in detail to the cartridges produced for the 400-800 computers. It says among the graphical frills will be clouds of dust produced by runners in the sports cartridges. And then it says there's rumored to be a attachment to run uh, VCS cartridges. But then it says beating the Atari System X to our shells will be the ColecoVision's new TV game center due out in, early in 1983. It's being marketed in this country by Ideal, and is promising a big improvement in game center graphics. But that's all they say about either console, and with that, we'll close this issue of Computers and Video Games. Let's check out Micro, the 6502-6809 journal, for December 1982, issue number 55, $2.50 in the US or Canada, $2.95 in International Edition, and £2 in the UK. It's a good news, bad news on the front cover here. It says Atari graphics and Commodore feature. It's the usual composition for the image, you know, looking back out at the monitor, onto a, looks like small town, city, street, decorated with Christmas decorations. Other stuff on the cover is Applesoft Go-To Go-Sub Checker, and in their continuing fascination with the 68000 for a 6502-6809 journal, it says 68000 Logic Instructions. In the December highlights, they give a whole paragraph to Commodore machines featured, saying they're going to cover the whole range of Commodore's computers, the PET, VIC, Super PET, and the exciting new Commodore 64. The Atari News is relegated to a single paragraph, saying Paul Swanson concludes his three-part series on Atari's character graphics, and his From Here to Atari column covers a variety of topics, including Atari's new software acquisition centers and some technical tidbits. The table of contents does include an additional Atari thing. It says Atari meets the BSR X10, and it's subtitled Using Atari's Controller Ports. And this is about the X10 home automation stuff. 
I don't know what the BSR company like acronym is though. So pause. And it looks like the, like the current holders of the X10 stuff have a history and it says there's a company called the Birmingham Sound Reproducers, which is a company formed after Pico Electronics developed a programmable record deck. And it says the seed was sown for remote control for lights and various appliances. And then it says by 1975, the company's 10th project sprung to life named X10. And that BSR merged into X10 Limited. So I don't know why BSR is still labeled here, because they said, according to the X10 people, that BSR faded out well before 1982. But for whatever reason, that's what we're dealing with now here in this magazine. So at any rate, we'll look at that article. But there's not much else interesting in the table of contents apart from a general 6502 thing saying utilizing the 6502's undefined opcodes. So we'll check that out too. The first interesting thing is Atari Character Graphics from Basic Part 3 by Paul Swanson. So we talked about last month using the Atari's fine scrolling function, saying the only problem was the screen flickered a little because you had to shut off Antic along with the display in order to alter the horizontal scroll register. I don't recall looking at that article that in-depth. Essentially saying to get around that, you have to have change changes made in the vertical blank. And so he includes a teeny little machine language program that looks at two registers and stuffs them into the horizontal and vertical scrolling hardware registers. And then it continues with the vertical blank process. And then a larger basic demo program that uses this routine in order to have some scrolling. So this is for like full screen scrolling. You poke your desired horizontal and vertical scroll offsets into two registers in page six. And then the vertical blank updates it. Et voila, fixes the problems from last month's article, apparently. The From Here to Atari column, also by Paul Swanson, is just a single page. It starts off saying, I was pleased to see that Atari Inc. recently established two regional software acquisition centers located in Cambridge, Massachusetts and London, England. Centers were set up to acquire software by contracting out for specific programs or buying software that has already been developed independently. More centers are planned for the future. I'll let you know where they will be as soon as Atari no- announces that information. In the technical tidbits section, he talks about how to convert between a TASCII values and the internal value, that is the value that's actually written into the screen memory as a character code. As an alternative to poking stuff into screen memory, you can also use the print number 6 command. And he even talks about it using that on graphics modes, you know, pixel addressable modes, which I don't really remember, but I tried it and sure enough it works. If you go print number six and then give it a string that represent color numbers, like the digit one represents color one, two for color two, three for color three, and four or a space for the background color. Sure enough, it plots pixels on there. I didn't remember that at all. And the other thing he talks about in this article is about the keyboard click. He said, saying several people have asked him how to eliminate that. And he said the only way would be to disconnect the keyboard speaker. But you can use another method if you write your own programs, which is essentially peak from 764, which is the keyboard code of the last key pressed on the keyboard. But if you did that, you would have to use your own logic for like key repeat and stuff. So not necessarily great for typing, but for reading like single keys for games or whatever, you could use that value. It says next month, he will introduce the operating system and hardware manuals and a few other sources of more technical information on the Atari. He says, I plan to make the technical tidbits a regular feature, so send in your questions. Then we get to the Commodore section, so I'm holding down the old skip button, and I gotta do that for a long time. Lots of skipping. Even after the Commodore section's over, I gotta keep skipping till I get to the the Atari Meets the BSR X10 by David A. Hayes. It says, a circuit is presented to interface the ultrasonic version of the BSR X10 home control system to Atari computers. So there's a circuit diagram that has a bunch of stuff on it. I see a couple of transistors, resistors, capacitors, battery, 
maybe a diode, a couple diodes, or is that a relay? What is that? I don't know. Don't rely on me for your electronics schematics reading, please. But it says, to use the X10 home control device, many computers require a hardware modification. In the January 1982 Byte, he references an article by David Stocklin. It says, to interface a non-ultrasonic X10 to the RS-232 port. It says, here, he's interfaced the Atari controller port to the more common ultrasonic version of the X10. There's a machine language program that interfaces to this device, but it's only given as basic data statements, so there's no assembly listing. But it has a couple basic USR calls and a table that says, you know, how to change channel and how to turn all lights on, all lights off, one on, one off, or brighten or dim. But that's it. That's all you get. If anybody has any experience with X10 and the Atari, please let me know. The 68,000 Love Affair continues with the Logic Instructions article. It's like, really, just get a room, guys. And then we get Utilizing the 6502's Undefined Operation Codes by Kurt Nelson, Richard Villarreal, and Rod Heisler. And knowing what I know now, I was assuming they were going to talk about some of these sort of artifacts you get because there are only like 180-some defined opcodes, and so there's a bunch of stuff that the 6502 doesn't actually define as a valid operation. But most of them have some interesting side effects that can be used to like load the A and the X register simultaneously or other interesting effects. And some games, I know there's maybe not as prevalent on the 400 800, but certainly on the 2600, there are some games that require these things to be um, emulated. And if they're not, you know, the game won't work. So I thought that's what this article was going to be about, but it says, no, what it is, is it's an instruction trapper. It says a simple hardware device attached to the data bus forces a simulated break command when an illegal opcode is detected. So yeah, this is not as nearly as interesting to me as a software person. As a hardware person, if you like schematics and stuff, there's a bigger schematic than what we just talked about. You have to get an IC. It's the, what is it, a 256x4 PROM? It doesn't reference anything more specific in the article, although the schematic says it's a 74S287. Maybe that means something to somebody, but not to me. Then how you can wire this thing up to the address and data lines and then have a software program to like react to some line that gets pulled high or something. I don't know. I was all thinking I could understand what was going to go on in this article. And then I read it and was like, nope. So sorry about that. Beyond my pay grade here. And with that, it's really it for the magazine because they have a Commodore 64 pullout data sheet that we're not going to cover. And nothing Atari related noted in the next month in micro preview. Let's take a look at Softside. It's number 36 on the cover, volume 6, number 3, although they don't say that till the masthead. $3 on the cover price, 132 pages in the issue, and on the cover is a stack of cartridges on a glowing green Tron-like grid. It almost reminds me of the levels of Tron, because the labels are computer languages. as 4th, APL, Pascal, Logo, Pilot, and then you can't read them going on because the sort of perspective goes away. But it's, the text is Alternatives to Basic, a Modern Tower of Babel? Question mark? The table of contents notes that article as the cover feature. In the regulars features section, it has an apparent review of the US Festival. I talked about that back in, I think it was the Deluxe Invaders episode, where Steve Wozniak was bankrolling this big music festival in San Bernardino, California. And so this is a review of that, apparently. So that'll be interesting to check out. In the Atari side, we have the Pokey Player 2, Munchkin Attack, looks to be a game. The disc version mentions Atari Fig Forth, some interactive tutorial that we'll check out. There's a review of Val Forth for the Atari, and lastly, an overview of Atari Pascal. And then there's the PC side, Apple side, and TRS-80 side that we're going to cover in the appropriate detail. 
The article on the US Festival, it says, Rock Show or Technology Fair? It's by Virginia Lyons. Open saying, an estimated 250,000 people gathered in the desert outside San Bernardino on September 3rd through the 5th, 1982, for the US Festival. That was bankrolled by computer whiz and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. I said it was named that way, billed as being the end of the me generation and the beginning of the us generation. And I don't remember that little tidbit when I talked about it during the Deluxe Invaders episode. But anyway, she goes on to say that the festival was supposed to be a blend of a technology fair and a large-scale rock concert. She said the caliber of the bands and the quality of the musicianship created one of the best rock performances in years. The technology fair, however, was disappointing to both visitors and exhibitors. Apparently there was a news conference on the 5th of September that where Wozniak said that the technology fair had been gradually relegated to a much less important place relative to the festival site construction, apparently. And apparently there are all sorts of plans that never materialized, like there was going to be a homebrew category where a bunch of people were going to display their own custom technology, and that exhibitors from companies had to attend with the provision that they couldn't have any sales, that it was just to exhibit stuff and expose people who may be unfamiliar with computer technology to some new things. She said that Apple Computer was there, although she said one Apple staffer admitted there had been some controversy about whether to even attend the show, but that about 20 Apple employees apparently forced the issue enough that they were able to attend. Atari was there, but only had 30 arcade games in a 50-foot exhibit, a very popular display with kids and adults alike, a great opportunity for the crowds to beat the heat in the air-conditioned tents, but unfortunately Atari did not seem interested in emphasizing any other applications of the personal computer. She says, Commodore made a half-hearted attempt at an exhibit showing only the VIC-20 with very little accompanying literature. And she says, Atari and Commodore missed a great opportunity to position their products relative to other systems. And then says, IBM, Xerox, Sony, Epson, Fortune, and other large microcomputer manufacturers did not even bother to show products. She said, the very last day the US Festival brought the largest crowds to the technology tents. But she said, frankly, the tents were not large enough to accommodate the crowds who used the occasion to spend the afternoon in an air-conditioned environment, because apparently it was like 110 degrees that whole weekend. She concludes saying it's a great idea to include new technology as part of a rock festival, and said hopefully the problems will be fixed for the next festivals scheduled for Memorial Day and the 4th of July. And spoiler alert, the Memorial Day one happened, but the 4th of July one did not, because they lost a lot of money on this one and the Memorial Day one, and I guess they cut their losses and didn't actually do the 4th of July one. It was cool to read this follow-up for, you know, a review of the festival, and I will keep an eye out for any other mentions of the Memorial Day Festival in upcoming magazine issues. There's a review of the book Starting Forth by Leo Brody. The review is by Peter J. Favaro. It's a one-and-a-half-page review, and I remember seeing this book, and I remember wanting to to read to get it, you know, so I could learn Forth. So I put the title Starting Forth on my Christmas list that year, and I guess it got passed around, and somehow it was not clear that it was a computer book. And my grandfather came up later and said, you know, it sounded like a great adventure book, and he couldn't find it, and he was sorry he couldn't get it for me for Christmas. And that's when I realized, you know, I didn't put down that it was a computer book. So had I only been more specific, I could have gotten this book, understood Forth, and my whole computing trajectory could have changed because I would have understood postfix notation on which Forth is based, you know, written stuff. Instead of assembly language, it would have been fast. I could have gotten games developed faster, could have been published, gotten a job at a games company, written super cool games, set up a game studio, get bought out by Electronic Arts, forced to work 100-hour weeks, get laid off while the company reports record profits. So, yeah. Perhaps I was saved by not being specific enough. The book review says it's an excellent book, written for everyone from the rank amateur to the seasoned computer professional. It says the author works through computer architecture, 
with simple examples showing how fourth being a stack-based language can be confusing, but after Mr. Brody explains concept after concept in a logical, orderly progression, he leaves absolutely no stone unturned. The reviewer, you know, describes a lot about fourth, how it's a stack-oriented language, how it uses postfix notation, which is like operands first and then the operator. So instead of two plus two, which is called infix notation, it's two, two plus. The result is that fourth code looks very strange to us who are used to, you know, normal procedural languages. The reviewer says, the patient reader can adapt to fourth's topsy-turvy world and cue your fellow deep cover agent. What would seem to be a syntax that borders on the bizarre eventually becomes very clear. He says the author explains everything logically in an orderly progression, using every technique he can muster up from humorous cartoons, which he illustrates himself, to meaningful comparisons to everyday living. And essentially, after you climb the steep hill of all this crazy fourth syntax, it's all downhill and gets easier from there. And despite sort of the different organization of fourth, where they talk about screens, each of which has 1,024 characters, or 16 lines of 64 characters each. And I'm not sure if Atari fourths were broken up that way or not. I, I think some were. not sure if that's all. You know, the fourths for the Atari were broken up by screens, because it seems like, I recall that they weren't, you know, you didn't use DOS, you actually just used this raw disk access. Anyway, the author is super effusive about this book, saying it's by far the most comprehensive book on the subject available, and saying the advantages of Forth are its speed, flexibility, and power, and its disadvantages are apparent only to those who feel uncomfortable letting go of conventional programming syntax. And it turns out starting Forth is actually available online today. I'll include a link in the show notes. Leo Brody, the author, has made it available on the forth.com website, and it's available as a PDF or online. You can go through it just on web pages. The PDF is of the first edition, and the online version apparently has been updated. It includes examples and an IDE called Swift Forth that's available for all the three major desktop OSs. Next, we come to an article, Alternatives to Basic, by Alan L. Wold, saying, Of the 200 or so languages available, the ones most widely advertised and used on microcomputers, aside from Basic, are Pascal, C, Forth, and Logo, saying each of these four languages has its own proponents, its own reasons for being a suitable alternative to Basic. There's a little graphic in the center of the first page that also includes COBOL and Fortran. This is a six-page article, and as a spoiler alert, he suggests all the languages are not a good replacement for Basic. He opens saying that many people think BASIC is not might not be the best language to use, and includes a quote from Edgar Dykstra, who incidentally worked at UT Austin, where I went to college. Yay, UT, hook'em horns. And goodbye, Texas A&M listeners. They were our big rivals back in the whole sports ball thing back in you know the 80s and stuff. Then A&M left the football conference, and I don't even know if they're still big rivals anymore. Anyway, back to the Dykstra quote who said that, in his opinion, learning BASIC mentally damaged the programmer beyond hope of regeneration, which is super funny if not exactly true. The author here says that BASIC has severe limitations, saying it's structured, takes a lot of memory, it's slow, it's not self-documenting, its file handling is clumsy, requires machine language subroutines to go fast, and encourages sloppy programming, all of which are true. Not to mention all the different dialects of BASIC makes BASIC not very transportable. And that says he's going to focus on the four languages mentioned, Pascal, C, Forth, and Logo, and that COBOL and Fortran are not typically promoted as alternatives to BASIC, so he's not going to cover those. He spends a long time, over half the article, like three pages, talking about what language is and how you communicate with people versus a computer. And only most of the way through that does he talk about languages that serve the computer versus languages that serve the author, the program writer saying that the earliest ones serve the computer and then the newer ones are geared to make it easier for the author. 
all these languages he's considering as alternatives to basic are ones that serve the author. But even so, he says they're, they have specific purposes. Like he does talk about Fortran and COBOL a little bit, saying that Fortran was designed for number crunching, but it's fatal to try to use Fortran to handle strings. Or for that matter, anything because Fortran's terrible. And full disclosure, I added that last little bit because that's the editorial opinion of the Player Missile Podcast. Friends don't teach friends to program in Fortran. It says it's futile to try to use COBOL for quick and dirty programming since writing the code takes longer than solving the problem by hand. And then later it mentions COBOL saying that it COBOL tries to resemble English, which I realized English is a messed up language and I pity the people that have to learn it as a second language. But holy cow, COBOL is... Yeah, you think fourth is obtuse? Get a look at COBOL. He then gets onto his four major competitors here. It says fourth was designed for machine control, originally to operate a large astronomical telescope, which is interesting if true. So pause for a little research, and yes, it is. Fourth came about from the sort of personal language development of a guy named Charles H. Moore. He worked at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and wrote a lot of software to control the big telescope at Kitt Peak, Arizona. However, he lived in Virginia, and of course the telescope was in Arizona, so it was remote development. The managers at the telescope itself needed someone local there in order to manage the software, so they brought in Elizabeth Rather, who was a systems analyst at the nearby University of Arizona. And when she got there, she was appalled to find this critical system written in a unique language, undocumented and known only to one human. She intended to rewrite the whole thing in Fortran, but apparently the realities of working for the government interfered and there wasn't the time or budget for this. So instead, it said she set out to learn and document the system as best she could. And I'm taking all this history from a fourth language history page on fourth.com that I'll link in the show notes. It said after two months of dealing with the system, she realized that the language was actually really pretty efficient and said that she could accomplish more in a few hours on the fourth computers once a week than the entire rest of the week when she had virtually unlimited access to several large mainframes. She was impressed enough by the efficiency of fourth that she left the university and began to work for the radio astronomy group. And then she became the primary sort of evangelist for fourth, wrote up all the documentation, the first fourth manual, and gave a lot of presentations and was instrumental in 1976 when the International Astronomical Union named FORTH as a standard language in use for the entire astronomy community. So that's just part of the mega history of FORTH that's not available on this FORTH.com website, which was set up by Chuck Moore and Elizabeth Rather, and yeah, is still in operation today, evangelizing for FORTH. And I gotta say, I'm actually sort of interested in learning FORTH. I've done enough reading here in the last, you know, little bit researching this um, this whole episode, this bit of the episode, that, I don't know, I'm intrigued by Forth now. I found there's a cross-compiler for Forth that targets 6502. It's called FOCO 65 by, and I'm going to nail this, Piotr Vishovati. Apologies to all concerned, and I'll include a link to the GitHub page in the show notes. And man, I'm going to lose my little shtick of saying Forth is impenetrable now. What is this podcast coming to? All right, we were talking about something, weren't we? Talking about the competitors to BASIC, you know, we just said fourth. In the article, he says fourth was a superb graphics language. However, its structure is quite different from any other language, which is very true. It says it uses reverse Polish notation like the HP calculators, which is the same as what I'm calling postfix notation. That's just what it's commonly known as now. But saying it's not all that easy to learn. And then in a typical bit of 80 sexism, says you can't teach a secretary to do business programming with it. It says C is a systems language for writing operating systems, calling it a mid-level language, more nearly like assembler in its logic and syntax than high-level languages such as Fortran, which he says tries to simulate algebraic logic, or COBOL, which tries to resemble English. 
Which again, say is like English has run through a cascading chain of Google Translate things, including like Leet Speak and, you know, Pig Latin, and then finally back to English. But hey, I said fourth was incomprehensible, so I don't know. What will I be saying about COBOL next episode? Tune in to find out. It talks about Logo, in spite of the dreams of its writers, is designed to familiarize children with computer logic and power. It's a good language in that is user-oriented, but like its parent language Lisp, it's as difficult to learn as fourth and Logo lacks a certain degree of power and computational sophistication. The final language really in consideration is Pascal, saying it was designed as a teaching language to enforce good programming habits, and that computer science students who learn it will then graduate to work on mainframes or at least large minis and not micros, and because Pascal is never essentially used in commercial applications outside the micro industry, he implies that that's a big drawback. But, although, you know, again... We're kind of talking about micros here, I think, because we're talking about trying to replace basic. So as you can see by him going over these four languages, he is not enamored with any of them. And you can kind of see where this is going to go, because he says essentially all four languages are disqualified to be a replacement for basic. Pascal, he says, is disqualified because, and these are things that apply to basic as well, but he says because there's so many incompatible dialects of Pascal and more likely to come, and then it's hampered by a reported weakness in I.O. capability that it's not suitable to replace basic. However, basic has these exact same things. And he also says that Pascal's structured nature is bad because it enforcing the good programming habits that the designers think is good may not be what the programmer thinks is good. But he discounts Pascal from there, and then he says fourth logo and C all have a different sort of variety of weaknesses that he then goes through that one, a replacement for basic needs to be extensible. And he says logo doesn't have this, only fourth C and Pascal really succeed at to various extent. A replacement should be easy to learn, which says only logo satisfies that one. It should be easy to use, and doesn't say any of the four are easy to use. It should be interactive which only Logo does, and it should be extensible, meaning to add commands or functions to the language itself, which he says is only possible in 4th and C. I don't know, I think he's missing a lot of stuff here. He says our ideal alternative to BASIC will not perform a specific set of complicated tasks, rather it will do a large number of elementary tasks easily and quickly, saying as 4th and Logo do, and then saving specialized problems for specialized languages. I guess he sums it up saying, Pascal forces you to write good code according to someone else's definition of the word good. Fourth is backwards and not at all human-like. C is mid-level, strictly mathematical and large. And Logo, while easy, doesn't have the sophistication that will encourage its use by serious programmers. So in conclusion, he really says, in the search for an alternative to basic, we arrive at an interesting question, why do we need one? But then he kind of cuts holes in his own argument saying, you know, there's a version of BASIC for the Commodore Super Pet that does some stuff, and then a version at Caltech which does some other stuff, which is kind of precisely the point he was arguing against Pascal. On the other hand, it's a living language being improved all the time, and it's everywhere. He concludes comparing it to the English language, saying that BASIC essentially is equivalent to English. You know, he says you don't talk math to your landlord or Latin with the local cop. Use English because everybody understands it. Use BASIC because it's there. And while basic like English can be used badly, deceitfully, or unintelligently, that's the fault of the user and not the language. So I don't know, I have mixed feelings about this article. To some extent, I, do, I agree, and I don't think basic needs to be replaced, you know, and it was certainly out there for all these, you know, microcomputers. For what it did, I think it was fine. But kind of like Logo is limited. I mean, there's only so much you can do in basic. You know, and a large program written in basic with its unstructured nature is very hard to decipher. Whereas a program like Pascal, for instance, or even C, 
the idea of breaking up things into subroutines and even separate files, you know, where you have related stuff in different files. And then obviously you can go up higher, you know, object orientation and whatever current paradigm you want to think about. There certainly is a limit to basics usefulness. And I think you do have to consider other languages as you get into bigger and bigger projects. So who knows, maybe I'll rewrite Jumpman in fourth. And before Kay Savitz smacks me upside the head with an Apple III, that's just a joke. Not going to happen. Jumpman 2 is still alive. The project will be completed at some point. Anyway, holy cow, I'm like a goldfish. How many times have I been distracted doing this magazine? So let's skip the IBM PC side, which occurs first in the magazine. What are you thinking, soft side? Atari goes first. There's an ad for attack at EPCYG4 that begins the Atari side. And we open with Pokey Player 2 by Craig Chamberlain, saying it's a music editing slash playing utility for the Atari 400-800 with 32K and Atari Basic. This is a modification and enhancement of the Pokey Player, which appeared in the October issue of Softside. And it doesn't really change the editor or the compiler, but it changes the player. Looking back at two issues ago, it doesn't really say how the player is actually works, but apparently it's not during the vertical blank because they make a big deal about this one, playing during the vertical blank so that other stuff can go on while the music is still working. So it gives a list of about 20 lines that you've got to change in the original Pokey Player basic program, and it also includes an additional listing of a basic program that has a whole bunch of data statements, so it gives you a new song, Capriccio by Handel. Unfortunately, it doesn't include any assembly language listings of the actual player itself. It does admonish you to, like, save the program first before you run it, because if there's some mistake and the vertical blank locks up, then you lose your program. Additionally, it says that if the program you're using stops, ends, or has an error, then it could also crash the program. So it says press system reset to clear out the vertical blank patch, because the vertical blank is stored in a position-independent string, which, I don't know, seems a little risky. Finally, it notes that while the goal of the Pokey Player was to provide means to add music to basic programs, please remember that permission must be obtained before Pokey Player can be used in commercial programs. Contact SoftSide for further details. So I wonder if it was used in any commercial programs or any other programs other than SoftSide. We'll have to see in the future if it's used in some SoftSide publications. Next is the game Munchkin Attack by David Plotkin, an arcade-style game for an Atari with 16K and a joystick saying it's similar to TRS Man, which appeared in the January 82 issue of Softside. However, it makes use of Atari's unique features, including player missile graphics and nine colors on the screen at once. Thus, this is more of an adaptation than a translation. So yeah, it's basically a Pac-Man clone written in basic and in its sort of Softside style. The listing is broken up into a paragraph of text description and then a few lines of basic and then more description of what goes on. So it covers about two and a half pages of basic for the entire listing. On the disc version of Softside, it includes Atari Figforth. It's unclear to me if this is the same Figforth that was available through APX, but this article extends over parts of five pages, and it tends to be a tutorial, but you'd already have to know Forth to know what's going on. As if I'm qualified enough to know that, with my recent interest in Forth, recent being several hours, but at least I can kind of recognize a little bit of what's going on. But still, it seems to be, um, yeah, for someone who is more knowledgeable than me on Forth. I don't know, stay tuned possibly for a fourth special at some point on the Player Missile Podcast. If that weren't enough fourth in the magazine, we come to a re- review of Valforth. Reviews by Sheldon Lehman. Valforth was written from um, Valpar Corporation. And the reviewer opens, trying to describe any computer language is difficult, but with fourth it is especially frustrating because it defies attempts to place it within familiar categories. And he says because it's so unfamiliar, he's going to try to go through a basic approach and talks about the fourth word, which is essentially the same as a subroutine, I guess. And then talks about how all the statements look kind of backwards, because it's a stack-oriented language. 
And additionally, one of the issues that a basic programmer might run into is that fourth is very extensible. And because of the number of words that are included here, it might be overwhelming to a basic programmer. It says Valfourth is based on the standard model of the fourth interest group, which is FIG. So I guess that's where FIGFourth comes in. The Valfourth documentation even says to learn fourth to use the book Starting Fourth by Leo Brody, which has been reviewed earlier. Anyway, he says it's a, a lot for the money. It's a comprehensive fourth system and that anybody who feels confident programming in BASIC and wants to develop higher performance programs should certainly cons- consider this alternative. And what was this, the language issue or what? There's a review of the Atari Pascal language system from APX. The review is by Janine Jeefy, saying that Pascal is a high-level language developed by Nicholas Wirth and Kathleen Jensen in the early 70s. And that's interesting. I had always heard that Pascal was from Nicholas Wirth only. And given all the sexism that happens in the 80s, I wouldn't be surprised if Kathleen Jensen weren't credited. And it does indeed appear a lot of sources say it was Nicholas Wirth only who designed the language. But I have found reference to the original Pascal programming language reference document that was authored by Nicholas Wirth and Kathleen Jensen. And that document became the ISO standard for Pascal. So I'm certainly quite comfortable calling them co-creators of the language. The reviewer talks about how it's a good introductory language because it has a small vocabulary, only 35 reserved words, and it's a very readable language and it's relatively easy to code in and debug. The difficulty of the language is it's very strict and that you have to use a compiler, you know, it's not interpretive like basic. She says the software is based on the ISO standard and it adheres closely to that, although it is a superset of that standard. It's not based on UCSD Pascal and has additional features that support Atari-specific stuff like the sound and graphics, and it does also include bit manipulation commands. A drawback of the APX implementation here is that it requires two disk drives, and that because the compiler requires a large portion of one disk, you have the second drive for your own software, but it says that compilation is disk-bound, meaning that you have a lot of I.O. when you compile things, and so it's slow to develop. She says with a significant investment in hardware, you can make this go much faster. But she says, given the complexity of the language, that some of this is inevitable, given that the compiler needs to be large to handle Pascal. She summarizes saying Atari Pascal is a powerful tool for only $49.95, but it requires a full-blown Atari computer system, and development time is slow. As a comparison, she includes a version of the same program, one in BASIC and one in Pascal. It says a player missile program entitled JAWS, and that the Pascal one runs 300% faster. It's about 100 lines of BASIC, and perhaps a similar number of lines of Pascal, but Pascal is much more verbose, it seems, in this example at least. And so while the BASIC version takes like half a page in three columns, the Pascal version takes four columns over two pages. And then unceremoniously, we hit the Apple side, so that means the Atari side is done. And we too would be done with soft side, except there's a mention of a game called Space Bowl in the new product section from Gamma Software. It says, enjoy sports in space on your Atari. It says, imagine a championship sporting event for a species of extraterrestrials called Denebs. Field of battle is black space. Goals orbit the field and serve as moving targets for the fierce play action. And there's only one review on Atari Mania, and it's amazing. It's from Greg B. and said, I ran across this program years ago and can't believe someone actually thought this thing was good enough to sell. What really impresses me is that to get the screenshot above, someone actually played the game for over two whole minutes. Personally, I was reaching for the reset button after about 10 seconds. And if anybody thought my review of Rearguard was too harsh, I offer this as a counterexample. 
Almost at the end of the magazine here, it has a list of where to buy Softside, and for what looks like every state, including D.C., Puerto Rico, and a couple listings in Canada, it has a list of looks like mostly bookstores, but some computer stores, where you can pick up a copy of Softside there at the newsstand. And then finally on the back cover, we have an ad from Synapse Software for two games, Drelbs and Slamball. This is available in disc, cassette, and cartridge for the Atari 400-800 computers and other titles soon available for the VIC-64, IBM PC, and the TI-994. So at least they listed the Atari first while simultaneously misspelling and misidentifying two of the competitors. Now we enter uncharted territory and we're going to add two new magazines to the coverage, both of which are UK magazines. The first is page six which started off as a newsletter of the Birmingham User Group, or Bug. The publisher was Les Ellingham, who apparently was the newsletter editor of Bug, and then decided to expand the scope so it would be of interest to a more broad section of the Atari community. The website page6.org has a history and purports to be the sort of official repository for the Page 6 magazine, but it says it's not connected to the original publisher, despite all material being reproduced with permission, and that the original copyright to Page 6 Publishing still remains into effect. This is the first issue here. It's a a bi-monthly publication. There's the occasional miss month, uh, but it's mostly stable until the late 80s, and then it merged with the Atari User Magazine. Atari user, we won't get to until we get into 1985. And then in 1988, Atari user kind of ran out of steam, and Page 6 bought the essentially subscriber list and merged it into itself, initially calling it Page 6 Atari user, and then finally settling on the new Atari user name for the issues starting in 1989. That's still a ways off. That's quite a bit in the future of the podcast. It's possible I'll make it to 1989. My guess is the hard stop for the podcast is probably going to be in the latest at 1990, Antic publishes its final issue in June of 1990, so an analog finishes in December of 1989. So assuming I make it that far, that's probably it. But that's a problem for another year. Back to page six itself. For the first couple of years, it appears to be mostly uh, black and white inside. Generally, the cover has an additional color or two. When we start getting into like 1985, it has like full color covers. And then after that, it sort of increases the use of color inside the magazine to some extent. But the majority of the pages seem to be black and white. I don't have any page sixes. And so it's hard to tell. It kind of looks like the paper itself might be a more newsprint style rather than, you know, like a thicker quality paper that you might find in analog or antic. So if you have any page sixes, let me know what the paper quality is like and how it changes over time. Or of course, if you have some you want to part with, I'm always happy to take some off your hands. But let's get started looking through this first issue. It's issue number one, December 82, January 83, 50 pence on the cover price. This first issue has 20 pages. And on the cover is a sort of hand-drawn Galaxian-style game where your player avatar is a Fuji symbol, and then you're shooting at a couple layers of Atari 800s and then a couple layers of Atari 810s. And one Atari 800 is sort of diving down at you, dropping some lasers on top of you. There's a sash on the bottom that says, The UK's first Atari magazine, and it says, Inside, vultures, new graphics modes, and latest software. The table of contents lists all those and a few more things, and it's, it's very kind of terse, just the title and then the page number with the author on some of them. The masthead says, Page 6, word processing by MWS Limited, printed by Birkbeck & Sons Limited, published by Bug. Editor Les Ellingham, editorial offices, and has a telephone number in parentheses, evenings. And his thanks to and lists a bunch of people, although it doesn't list Sandy Ellison, who page6.org says helped with the editorial content of the magazine. 
A year subscription is £3.75. So single copies are 65 pence, including P&P, which, I don't know, is postage and pandling. Checks payable to bug. Page 6 is published bi-monthly, and Atari is a registered trademarker of Atari Inc. All references should be so noted. In the editorial, it says, A new Atari magazine. Welcome to issue 1 of page 6. The magazine's been put together by a group of Atari enthusiasts who come together as the Birmingham User Group, the largest independent Atari computer club in this country to hold regular meetings. It said, I was appointed newsletter editor, but quickly realized we could produce a good quality magazine that could be enjoyed by Atari enthusiasts throughout the country. It said, the future of the magazine is now in your hands. The content of the next issues needs to be supplied by you, the readers. It says, we are not a profit-making organization and therefore cannot normally pay for articles. But by contributing, you will benefit from an ever-improving magazine, which will help you get the maximum enjoyment out of your Atari computer. With your help, page six will become the Atari magazine. It says, I would like to thank all those who contributed to this issue, and in particular, my wife, who provided many hours of help voluntarily. And it says, why page six? It says, old hands at Atari programming will already know the answer. We wanted a name for the magazine that you could easily remember, but more, more importantly, one that would specifically indicate the magazine was for Atari computers. And then talks about how page six is the area set aside for free user space. In the news section, it says Atari slashes prices again. 800 has a massive 100-pound price cut, bringing the RRP, what is that, retailer recommended price, perhaps, to £399.99, including BASIC. It says there's new stuff from Compute, the Compute's book of Atari graphics, and the Computer Animation Primer, which we've talked about before. It said Atari's coming out with Defender on the cartridge, which looks excellent, and Spinnaker has a new range of educational software. And they say a subsidiary of Adventure International, called creatively Adventure International UK Limited, is to be set up in mid-January. And they talk about Scott Adams himself being com- coming to the UK for a promotional tour. Then we get into a few listings here. There's a game Secret Code by Les Ellingham, which is a classic codebreaker or mastermind type program, it says. About 80 lines of basic. There's a teeny little program called Line Lister, which is five lines of basic that you can add to your program to list only a group of lines at a time. Although, as Bill Kendrick noted on Twitter from the last episode, have people not heard of Control-1 to stop the screen? There's a little article, Adventure America by Jeff Woodward, talking about the adventure programs from Creative Computing Software, so you can write to them and get the original Colossal Cave. There's about a 150-line basic program called Vultures 3 by Stan Ockers, saying it's a game that originally appeared in the Atari Computer Enthusiasts of Eugene, Oregon. It doesn't describe anything about what the game's about, and there's no screenshots, and I don't know how or when screenshots will start to appear in page 6, but certainly not this issue. There's an article, More Graphics Modes by Colin Boswell, talking about how you can use the prior register to trick the GTIA into to doing its stuff in various modes, and so this is particularly about graphics zero. So it kind of turns it into a sort of text-based graphics 9, 10, or 11 mode, where each each character, you know, it's still 8 pixels tall, but then it's only 2 pixels wide, because each pixel then it takes four by, or 4 bits to choose one of the 16 available colors. There's a column, What's New?, by Jeff Brown, saying he's been asked to write a regular column for page 6, outlining some new products which are imminent, and others which are, as yet, only on the horizon. So some of it's hardware, some of it's software, like, talks about the game Way Out, finds you trapped in a 3D maze, and also mentions stuff like the Fast Chip, which we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast, speeding up floating point operations to some small extent in BASIC. There's an article, Atari Attracts, by Phil Griffin, talking about the attract mode and how you can trick it into activating earlier by poking some values into decimal location 77. And once that value increases to 128 or more, it hits the attract mode and starts to color change. 
there's a little software section which has like uh, several like two paragraph reviews of some games like Deluxe Invaders, Clowns and Balloons, Baja Buggies, Choplifter, Frogger, but they're certainly not very detailed and no screenshots here either. There's a first steps column, says it'll be a column of hints and tips to help you get started with your Atari. It says it's not going to teach you how to write programs, but we'll try to give you answers to many little problems you find when first beginning. It's by Mike Reynolds Jones. It covers how to type in programs and saying there are many nice type-ins available from American magazines like Compute, Antic, and Analog. And one of the things to try is to poke 82 with 0, which changes the left margin from its normal position of 2 to 0, which gives you 6 extra spaces in each logical line. But says if you press system reset, you'll have to re-poke. It talks about how to type some special characters, like hitting the escape key and then the control clear keys together will get you the up-left arrow. And then recommends the book Your Atari Computer by Lon Poole, saying the book is invaluable, it will remain your constant reference guide. And finally, at the end of the magazine, there's a club call, it says. It's saying it'll feature news from Bug, and as the magazine gets bigger, happy to set aside pages for news from other user groups as well. And the back cover is an ad from Callisto Computers Limited, which is a reseller of both hardware and software, it looks like. So some of the prices here, it says the Atari 800 with BASIC is £499.95, unlike earlier in the the magazine where it said it was going to have £100 off from Atari. Atari 400 with BASIC is £249, and without BASIC is £199. The 810 disk drive is £299, and a 48k upgrade for the 400 is only £99. On the previous page, the inside front cover is an ad for the Atari 400 full-stroke keyboard from Soft Cell Limited, but it doesn't have a price, so it's probably, you know, 400 with an external keyboard plus the 48k upgrade would be a much more value proposition, I would think. But that's it for this one, so yeah, it's bi-monthly, so we'll be seeing page 6 here uh, as a regular feature now in the podcast. The last magazine we'll cover here in this episode is Atari Input Output. It's a quarterly publication of Atari UK Inc. And the ink is important because, like everything else Atari Inc., it stops when Jack Trammell buys Atari Inc. and turns it into Atari Corp. So there's only five of these issues. The first one is hard to actually even call a magazine. It's more like a pamphlet. It's only four pages. The subsequent ones are like 16 pages and stuff, so it's a little bit more substantial. But so it says, Atari I.O., the quarterly magazine of the Atari Home Computer Club, issue one, winter 82-83. There's no price on it. And I guess as I look at it more, it looks like it's like A4 size, perhaps, but then folded in half. So I think it's not four, it's four pages as shown up in the Internet Archive, but it appears it might be like folded in half and stapled in the center. And so really it's like eight pages. And the scan that you see in the Internet Archive is like looking at both halves of the sort of flattened out version of the pamphlet. So on the title page, it says, Making the most of graphics with GTIA, Breaking the Sound Barrier, the Sound Effects for Tron, Free Tickets to ET in our competition this issue, Setting up a user group, Our Experts Tell You How, Products, Programs, and Puzzles, and Hotline Help. On the next page, the editor, which is just named the editor, there's no person behind it, and in general, that's the, the theme of this. There's, most articles are uncredited with any author. So the editor section is just called I.O. And it says, welcome to the first issue of I.O., our new look quarterly news magazine for Atari Home Computer Club members throughout the U.K. It says, I.O. will provide you with all the latest information you need to get the best out of your Atari computer and a lot of fun besides. It says each issue is going to carry a special feature, graphics, programs, and program puzzles, a competition, club merchandise, and product news, as well as regular news briefs from Atari Worldwide. It says, keep in touch, write to me, the editor, at the address below, which is the editor, comma, I.O., Atari International UK Incorporated, Atari House, Railway Terrace, Slough, Berkshire. 
there's a little note saying that APX is around. And so if you have any programs you want to submit, don't be shy. So send it to us and we'll put it up for inclusion in APX. There's the ET exclusive saying that the film is set to break all box office records and it's going to open in December in London. And so they're giving away 100 free tickets. So you got to send your entry in quickly. There's a list of 10 questions. And if you get all 10 correct, you'll be entered in this drawing. And here are the questions you got to answer. Number one, your Atari computer contains many graphics functions. One of these allows you to superimpose characters. What is it called? Number two, how many graphics modes does your computer have that are accessible from basic? Number three, which command would you use to change the contents of a color register? Number four, what happens to your computer screen if you don't touch the keyboard for 20 minutes? Number five, in graphic zero, how do you adjust the left-hand margin? Number six, what memory location do you need to examine to to determine whether start, select, and option are being used? Seven, which command is necessary to perform a fill operation? Number eight, which poke would you use to get lowercase letters on a graphics two screen? Number nine, what function does the 410 recorder have that makes it uniquely different from any other cassette recorder? And number 10, what does shift control I do in super breakout? I think most of those are straightforward, except for number one, to superimpose characters. I'm not exactly sure what they mean by that. I mean, like to change the character set or stick a player missile on top of another character? I don't know exactly. I probably wouldn't be getting those tickets to E.T. There's a brief mention of the fifth personal computer world show from the 10th to the 12th September at the Barbican. Which, for us non-UK people, I guess is a performing arts center in the Barbican's estate area of London. It says this personal computer world show beat all its own records and put itself on track as the best attended microcomputer show in the world. Which is interesting. I wasn't able to find a lot of references to the personal computer world show. There are certainly magazines that reference you know various people attending the show. But I can't find like any central repository of information about any of the shows at all. We here in the States always think of the CES, Consumer Electronics Show, as being the big show. And some of the UK references I've seen say that, that this PCW show is just as influential, if not more, than the CES. And I don't know if that's, you know, British Empire wishful thinking, or if that's, you know, my American biases not knowing about the PCW show. I would certainly be interested to know what other people's perception of the PCW show were in comparison to the CES. So if you have any, like, knowledge of that, please let me know. There's a few little basic programs, and there's a program puzzle by Tom Hudson of Atari US saying that it's uh, reprinted by permission of Atari Connection magazine, and as well as the following two-page article on Tron, the sound effect generation, which was reprinted from the Atari Connection magazine that we talked about in the Quarkson episode, episode 23. The text is the same as in that issue, but the pictures are different, interestingly. If you don't remember that episode, it's basically talking about how the 800 was used to generate some of the sounds and sort of blend it together, and then how also a database program was used on the Atari that sort of cataloged all the sounds that they recorded. And that's really it. This is not really a substantial magazine at this point, and we only have four more after this. So it's kind of like a sort of cut-down version of the Atari connection, but for UK-specific stuff. And now let's hear from Mike, who has a reasonable request from a reader of Byte magazine. Can we please quit squabbling over which operating system is the best, or at least set up some ground rules for comparisons? I'm very tired of the watermelon versus kumquat comparisons of Unix and CPM that have been raging in Byte this year. To begin with, there are many different types of operating systems, including single-user systems such as CPM and RT11, real-time systems such as RSX 11M, time-sharing systems such as Unix, VMS, RSTS, and MPM. It is a waste of time to fight over members of different groups. 
The only thing that really matters is if you are using an operating system that is suited to the task at hand. This can be illustrated quite well with Digital Equipment Corporation's PDP series of computers. At least four choices of operating systems are available for it. RT11, RSX11M, RSTS, and Unix. For various tasks and under different conditions, any one may be the better choice. On a single machine I have, at various times, used RT11 to run diagnostics, RSX11M to run a statistical package that required it, and Unix for all in-house daily processing. If I ever encountered a package that ran under RSTS, I would be glad to try to accommodate that system, too. As a matter of interest, my machine can handle one user under RT11, about four under RSX11M, and about ten under Unix. Because CPM is a near double of RT11 for 8-bit machines, the folly of direct comparisons is obvious. If you let them, operating systems can become religions instead of tools to get your job done. More than enough religious fanatics are battling in the world today. We don't need a holy war over Unix and CPM. If you are happy with your operating system, that's fine. But don't blind yourself to the fact that some tasks, perhaps even yours, might be much easier to perform in another environment. It's one thing to be locked into a system because of a large investment in time and money, and quite another to use the fact that you are locked in to promote antiquated and low-powered systems onto new machines. Tom Slezak, Computer Scientist at Biomedical Sciences Division, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Thankfully, we all heeded Tom's advice, and none of the religious operating system debate exists anymore. Thanks again to Mike, staff writer at Juice GS Magazine. And I can't tell you how much I'm excited for what they're going to share with you when we get to some of the 5200 versus ColecoVision letters to the editor in the uh, 5200 special that I'm running here. It's some super amazing back and forth, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Well, that's about it for the December 1982 magazines. I'm not sure what's coming up next, either a game review of something or maybe another episode of the 5200 coverage. It'll be a surprise to you and me both, maybe. In the meantime, while you're guessing what's coming next... If you've ever had the sudden desire to learn the fourth language, you can send me an email at feedback at playermissile.com. Or if your use of BASIC has left you mentally mutilated beyond hope of regeneration, send me a tweet about it. I'm at Atari8BitGames. Just remains for me to thank Steph Animal for the use of her song Dragon Swirl as a theme to the podcast. And I think I decided what I'm going to do next episode. It's... (laughs) 